Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you with me. Hope you're having a wonderful day. On to today's interview. It is so great to have Patty McCracken with me today. She is an award-winning journalist whose work has been featured in the Smithsonian, Wall Street Journal, Columbia Journalism Review, San Francisco Chronicle, and many other publications. She formerly worked as an assistant editor at the Chicago Tribune and is twice a Knight International Press Fellow. And she is the author of The Angel Makers, Arsenic, A Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murdering. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. So how did you first learn about this group of killers in early 20th century Hungary? Yeah, well, I was uh, living in Austria at the time in a small village that bordered Slovakia and also was near the border of Hungary. But I was just, you know, driving down the back roads of the internet one day and saw this strange piece, this article about this strange thing that happened in this small village in Hungary. And my neighbor at the time, uh, was a guy named Harold, and he was an amateur photographer. So I went knocking on his door, and I said, Harold, do you want to take a road trip? <laughs> and so he was game, and we uh, I got a, secured an interpreter, and off we went to the village to find out a bit more. And then the rest is history. <laughs> so wh- what kinds of conversations did you have in the village and was this something the people there were eager to talk about? Is is there a tourism industry uh, built up around it? Well, it was interesting when I went there. It was it was very typical Central or East European small small village, rather poor, rather tight knit community, 
And the first thing that you do as a journalist is usually go to the local pub or local cafe if you don't really, you know, there's no roadmap saying, here's Auntie Susie's house and here's this or that. No, I mean, this for them, it's their daily life. So I went to the local pub and spoke with, we, you know, we sat down, we ordered our Cokes and our cappuccinos and such. And um, the owner or the guy working there, presumed to be the owner, we sort of asked him about it after we'd been there for a little while. And he was kind of like, I don't want to talk about it. What do you want to know? That type of thing. So when you look at it from their perspective, it's something that they have to live with. These are the descendants of, and the descendants, descendants, descendants. And it's just kind of a fabric of their life, but also not because, you know, they have their own lives to live. And, for them, it's ancient history. Would you set the scene for us? What was Hungary like during this time uh, politically, economically? Yeah. So what was going on at the time is that Hungary was in the middle of World War I and was in the middle of losing World War I, you know, losing their part in it. And in losing, they were losing really a kingdom. They were losing everything, everything. For example, you take Budapest, um, which was was and is now a grand city, but it didn't take long for that grand city to fall. I mean, you can look at the news, you can look at, at Kiev and see, you know, you can compare pictures from a year ago and see pictures today and see the destruction. And although bombs weren't dropping on Budapest, they may as well have been because they had no access to any medicine. Doctors were using paper and taping paper over wounds. They had nothing. Um, They had no food coming into the city because the railway lines were cut, so people were starving to death. It was absolutely heartbreaking and desperate. And in the countryside, villages in the countryside fared a lot better because they could provide their own, they were more self-sustaining and they could provide their own foods, and they weren't crammed on top of each other, So, you know, which we know breeds disease. So they actually fared better, but it's all relative because the, all their sons and husbands were going off to war and not coming back or coming back devastated, and not a lot of mental health care in 1916. So it was, it was a pretty... Difficult. Hungary was in its uh, darkest days at that time. Right. And, and what about the village of Nagarev? What role did it play, if any, in the war? It was just like any village anywhere. You know, you've got to send the men going off to battle, going off to the front. They had to lose their men who normally worked in the fields. And the women took over. There were... Russian POWs in the area. I don't mention this in the book, but there were Russian POWs uh, in Solnok, which is the major town and sort of in the county seat. And they were there and they were put to work. I didn't find anything that said they were put to work as far away as Nagarev, but they could have been. But mostly it was um, the women taking over or the, the older men who were too old to fight, just carrying the load. Right, right. 
Uh, and if we can, let's talk about how you chose to construct this book. Um, it's not a typical history book in the sense that uh, you're not focused on giving every detail, every date, every movement of every character in the story, uh, background history, etc. You instead put yourself into the minds of the characters that you chose to forward the narrative, uh, taking some literary license in an effort to make the story read more like a novel, right? Right, right. I mean, I see it as if you if you were watching something on TV, it'd be like a docudrama. So it's not the dry facts. Um, what I felt like once I got into the story was, you know, really kind of reconstruct the DNA as best I could and do what I could to bring bring this period back alive again. So rather than feeling like you're in a dusty archive, which I was in for quite a while, rather than the reader feeling like they're in that dusty archive, to try to put the reader in the place at that time. So there's a lot on the internet about the angel makers, and they're mostly general summaries of the killings, and they all tend to repeat each other. And in these summaries, the reason given for why the women acted the way they did, why they were really dissatisfied with their husbands, was because they were having affairs with these Russian POWs. And the, these POWs were actually working on local farms, etc., to help out while the village men were off fighting. Um, you've done a lot of research on this. Does this ring true at all? I didn't find that. I had read that as well. I just didn't find that as a reason. I didn't find that there was any... I, I've read that and I don't know what the general source of that is, but I just didn't find that to be true. So that didn't make it into my book as, a, as part of the narrative just didn't seem to ring true. At least in the arch archival information and such, there just wasn't anything to support that. that. That seems to be a pretty convenient explanation for why the women acted the way they did. That they yeah. suddenly found themselves uh, liberated from their husbands. <laughs> By Russian soldiers, of all things, right? Right. And then when their husbands came back, the men wanted to reimpose um, their oppressive control over their wives. And this in turn increased marital tension. Yeah, I didn't find that to be true. And I think it was interesting because the Hungarian press, mostly the press from Budapest, were very, very vocal, I guess, about women. These women have no morals. And I should find direct quotes on that, but these women have no morals and they're loose women and they need to be kept in line. That kind of thing was that this happens because society is just not keeping its women under control. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that was a lot of what was written in the press that these were just horrible women who just had no um, oversexed and that kind of thing. So that was a lot of what was going around in the press, like trying to trying to find an answer as to why this would happen. And their answer was that the women just had sex like with abandon and were, you know, so it was just to cast dispersions on women as a whole was what they what seemed to be happening in the press. I mean, they were just outraged at at women in the countryside, you know, these peasants 
and they're uneducated and why should we expect anything less? I mean, it was right. horrible. I would never, it was horrible to have to read it. Um, but that's what was going around. And these were well-known writers. So for example, our Truman Capote would be writing this about some equivalent would be writing this uh, that was going out in the national papers at the trials of these women, just casting aspersions left and right. And I, I'm not to say that, not to say that it wasn't deserved. I mean, they committed murder, but to say the reason, you know, they were going down the wrong path. They were saying that they were just born bad, basically, and that it was all because their um, sexual appetites were too strong. <laughs> So overall, these women were compelled to murder because they had no other way out and or they felt they had no other way out. So, you know, if you're living in a and now I don't I don't want to be an apologist for them too much um, because some of them were quite nefarious and, you know, were just killing for their own um, gain. But many of them were in desperate situations. And, you know, what do we say? Desperate times call for desperate measures. And again, not condoning what they did, but trying to cast, to be compassionate about understanding their situations. And, you know, if you see that your husband is, you know, your husband is abusing you, there was, there was one woman, there were many, many, but one woman that I portray in the book, her husband was, you know, had fired shots at her, you know, with her two children. And what is she to do? She can't, she can't run away. There's nowhere to run. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have any education. She doesn't have any rights in the society. What do you do? And is this the thing that she should do? I don't know. But I think it's not that they were um, just sitting around one day and saying, oh, I'm tired of my husband. I think I'll poison him, you know. Is what they were tired of was the abuse from their husbands. And the situation is, is complicated, I'm, I'm sure, by the fact that these Hungarian men returning from war were not the victors. There, there was psychological damage, uh, PTSD. Yes. Yeah, they were coming back quite emotionally damaged. So they were in World War, you know, in trenches in, in the war. But it's important to also say that it didn't start at World War I. It just kind of picked up pace a bit. And it wasn't just Nagarov that was doing this. It wasn't just the surrounding villages that were doing this. This was something that was historical in, in Europe through the ages. Uh, the French called arsenic inheritance powder. I don't know where that comes from or if that's justified or not, but a lot of times you can see how it can happen if a woman can't own property, but maybe her husband dies and maybe the brother gets the property or some other male figure gets the property, leaving her without any means. You know, you can kind of see how that would, well, got to do something. Or again, you get a nefarious thread in there as well, where some women were doing it you know, creating trouble where there was no trouble to begin with and saying, you know, I'm just, they were nefarious and they had gains to be made. But yeah, it's kind of weird to think about, but arsenic was, has been used throughout the ages. And, um, you know, who was it? Mozart, wasn't he, wasn't arsenic or how was he, he was uh, said to be poisoned. 
so, you know, it's, it's kind of people, <laughs> people used it as a way to so-called get rid of um, people who were either in their way or in the case of the angel makers, my book, being harmed by people. Again, right. in most of the cases, some of the cases, they were a little bit, you know, hmm. So you mentioned Aunt Susie. Who was Aunt Susie and what role did she play in this community? Auntie Susie played a central role in the village. So Auntie Susie was the midwife of the village. And like midwives, traditionally, uh, she was no different. Midwives were central figures in the villages because they were often the de facto doctor, the de facto vet, the de facto counselor, because often the doctor couldn't get there. And so a midwife wasn't just uh, delivering babies. The midwife was also an herbalist. So they were usually experts in plant medicine. So if you went to the midwife, you know, you had a rash on your elbow and it was concerning you. You didn't understand, you know, what's going on. Uh, you could go to the midwife and she could, with her knowledge, which was usually pretty vast, just apply ointments or, or tinctures or potions that she, um, plant medicine that she gathered to, to heal your rash or to heal the, the source of pain or, you know, what was going on. And so anything from a hernia to, you could just, the sky's the limit to a certain degree as to the things that they could heal um, or would attempt to heal. And so people in the community really relied on her, just like they would rely on any midwife. So they were also, it was really interesting because when I first started poking around this story, all my friends in Austria were like, looked at me knowingly, ah, yes, the midwife. Yeah, midwives were quote unquote wise women. And so even the people currently, even Europeans currently know the tradition of midwives in European villages up through World War I, which was they weren't just the midwives, they weren't just the herbalists, but they were also um, kind of shamans as well. And I might be using that word uh, term wrong, so I don't want to claim knowledge that I don't have. But if you kind of can understand the sort of spiritual aspect as well. So, you know, the little bit of magic in there, so-called magic or mystical things that the rest of the village didn't really know anything about, but they would go to her or they, the midwife would have a kind of mystical quality about them. And so Auntie Susie was kind of typical. She wasn't atypical at all in that kind of thing. So yeah, the midwife was absolutely had a central role in the villages in Europe. And what was Aunt Susie's real name? Uh, Susie Ola Fazikas. Okay. Uh, at what point during her time in this village did the murders begin? Do you know when, how she made that very first suggestion to the, to the first of these wives to use arsenic to poison you know, her husband? I know. I, I wish I knew that because I can never find the actual origin. But she wasn't the only one in the village doing this. There were other women. And like I said, this was 
uncommon common in Europe, you know? So she wasn't, she didn't think of this herself. This wasn't like, you know, she woke up one day, I have a good idea, you know? So I don't know who her first client, shall we say, was. The other women were doing it, but other women were not doing it like a business like she was. But I don't know the first one, but I do know they did pick up at the war and they picked up sort of more as Spanish flu hit the village and, and then sort of got a kind of steamrolled a bit. But, um, and I think with Spanish flu, it would pick up because it was easy to mask, you know, because the symptoms of Spanish flu and the symptoms of, you know, you could say, Oh, he died of Spanish flu or they didn't call it Spanish flu, but yeah, he died of this and people would just, accept it. So how was she getting the arsenic? And was she distributing it to these women or telling them how to get it? Uh, she was distributing it. The others who were doing it, you know, themselves independent on her were, you know, also kind of getting it on their own. But so she would kind of head down to the local shop and she would buy fly paper and she would come back to her house and she would a pain in a painstaking process, she would distill arsenic from the flypaper. And don't go trying this at home because arsenic's not on flypaper anymore. So, <laughs> but um, so she would do that, and then she would bottle it in these glass vials, and she would keep a glass vial in her pocket wrapped in this white paper. I mean, if you imagine a babushka, I don't know what, I think probably what comes to your mind as a babushka is the same thing that comes to my mind. So if you imagine a babushka sort of walking around the village with an apron on, that was that was Auntie Susie. And she would sort of go around and she'd hear somebody's having trouble with their husband and somebody's having trouble here, and this with their husband. And she would go around and she would say, why are you bothering with him? And then she'd say, I have a solution. And she literally had a solution that she'd pull out of her pocket and um, try to convince them there was a way, there was a way out of their problems. And very often she did convince them there was a way out of their problems. So Angel Makers, where did that name come from in your understanding? Yeah, the, the term Angel Makers is like from the German word, which means abortionist. And so I, I don't know how, I, it's kind of an easy thing to sort of see because as a midwife, she also did, was an abortionist, at least she was. I, I'm not going to say that every midwife was, but I will say that she was. So it kind of came from that. And I don't know who first uh, associated it with them. I don't know who did. I would like to say I came up with that, but I didn't. <laughs> they were known about that. They were known by the that name before it before I wrote the book. We will be right back. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. 
is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So the arsenic... Was it mostly slipped into food and drink? And what did it do to its victims? Yeah, so the arsenic was uh, definitely slipped into the victim's food and drink. Uh, Auntie Susie liked to say that she liked to put it in goulash or soup, something thick, she would say. But by and large, it was usually slipped into their wine or their brandy. They drank a lot of uh, delicious plum brandy, by the way, in that region. And so that was the most available and the easiest thing to do. So she would usually slip it into the wine, the brandy, sometimes the coffee, and things like goulash. And the effects of arsenic can range. It's going to depend so much on the individual. It's going to depend on how much was given. uh, And it's going to depend on the length of time. So not just how much was given in one dose, but over time, it can have a different effect than it would have if, if a whole lot is given it at once. So if a not enough is given, if we're speaking about, you know, wanting to, sounds kind of, if, if her aim is to kill, uh, if, if she doesn't give enough, then what's going to happen is the body's going to become tolerant of the arsenic. And so there will be symptoms, but, you know, the body learns to tolerate it and the person doesn't die. And so she has to give more. If she gave too much, then it's, it was problematic for her because then it's, why did this person suddenly die overnight? 
So for her, the problem was adjusting how much to give, when to give it. So that was pretty much sometimes it worked in terms of she would have somebody, she'd give the arsenic and set a precedent that this person is sick. Uh, Maybe it could look like dysentery or something like that. And then maybe a few weeks later, the person dies. It didn't always work that way, but that was usually her intention to not have them die too quickly, but not have it take too long. And then it becomes problematic for her. Sorry to talk about it so matter of factly, but this is, this was her MO. That's what she would do. Right, right. And there was a doctor named Segedi. When he was in the village, he, he competed with Aunt Susie, right? What, what was their relationship like? Yeah, he would sort of be, you could think of that as competing with her. I mean, so he would come to the village. He was in charge of several villages in the region. And it was Tuesdays every week. He would come on Tuesdays to see patients and they would sign up for an appointment with him and meet him at his examining room. But that was only when he could get there. So half the year he couldn't get there because the roads would be washed out because of bad weather. And you could you could count on that like you could count on you know, the clocks turning the hour every day that he could not get there for several months out of the year. And so, although in some way a doctor would be in competition in another way, they would be in my mind, they would probably kind of thankful that there'd be somebody there to tend to people when he couldn't get there. But when he came into the practice, when he took it over, it was at a time when the country was trying to come back from an absolutely devastating war. And it was a time when Budapest was trying to make changes in the villages to bring more medicine to the villages to try to quote, I say, quote unquote, modernize the villages and, and mainstream their healthcare system, such as it was. And part of that was building a midwife's institute in the nearby city of Solnok. And they wanted to do away with midwives um, in villages and for women to have babies in hospitals delivered by men, even though the men didn't really have any experience because they weren't midwives who had been the ones delivering the babies all the time. So it was sort of this complicated situation going on as they tried to transition women into what they were thinking, you know, was a more modern way of delivering babies. So um, his relationship with her was he went into the village, you know, to sort of look at, okay, where are things? I got to get myself familiar. This was all new to him. He'd just been sort of taking over. And he was surprised by certain things that he saw in the village logs that were kept, the births and the deaths. He wasn't so concerned about her taking care of the health needs, you know, and fixing, you know, the headaches and the hernias. But he was concerned about what he saw um, happening in terms of family planning, I'll say. And so he, st- he started to raise some red flags with him. Got it. Did he ever uh, follow through on his suspicions and and actually take action to stop what was happening? Yeah, he did. He was concerned because of what he saw as, um, he saw that the births were suspicious and that so many families had a boy and a girl and not more. And 
he thought, what's going on here? And it's interesting to think about this, but midwives at that time weren't just responsible for bringing babies into the world. They were also responsible for family planning. They were also responsible for um, women coming to them and saying, I, I can't have a fourth, fifth, sixth child. We don't, we're poor. We don't have the money for this. And so usually with herbs, they would abort the pregnancy that sometimes resulted in a very difficult miscarriage at later dates. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go too much into that because I might go beyond my scope of what I know about the practices specifically at that time, but that would be generally what could happen in that, or the baby, there would be a baby born anyway, probably prematurely. And the baby would be sadly destined to die because it just wouldn't, you know, wasn't developed enough because the baby had, there had been an attempt at an abortion. And so this would count as an infanticide. There were other times where like very, very rare occasions actually where a baby would come to term, the mother would deliver, but the mother had no chance of nursing the baby, didn't have enough milk, and there wouldn't be any way to feed the baby. And so almost as an act of mercy, a midwife would, this midwife anyway, would give arsenic to the baby to make the passing quicker. Um, it's very hard to think about, especially I think as a woman, it's very hard to think about these sort of hardcore um, ways of doing things, but it was often the reality. So this is what he was coming into the village. He was seeing things that just weren't adding up. Why does every family have a boy and a girl? That was quite different from regular family planning, you know? So there seemed to him to be something more going on than there would have been in an average village of terminating pregnancies because there were too many children, not terminating pregnancies to get the type of family that you wanted to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it sure does. And, and this was what led to her arrest early on, right? Yeah, he had taken, he arrested her for on, I think it was nine counts of abortion, or he didn't arrest her, but he, he alerted the authorities to this. And she confessed because that's what midwives did to prevent families from having, you know, children that they didn't want and couldn't feed. This was very normal practice for midwives. She took it to a different level, but yeah, she was, she confessed because she fully believed there was absolutely, you know, nothing wrong with this. So she had no problem confessing to those. She also had no problem confessing because she was relieved that he wasn't going down the other path and finding out what she was doing in the other way that he, um, he missed. He didn't see these unusual number of deaths that were coming up right before his eyes of full grown, you know, men. So this is just temporary for her. She comes back when she's released and continues to assist with these killings, these murders. And as these deaths happened with more and more frequency, did members of the village blame Aunt Susie? Was there anger directed towards her? There was not anger, but there was fear. She was convicted of those charges of abortion and then later exonerated for reasons that I couldn't find. They were inexplicable. 
And it was like when she came back to the village, they thought, oh my gosh, she, she has magic powers that we can't, we can't wrestle with, you know, if she can get exonerated by the higher court on what was clear cuts when she confessed to these, these abortions, then she can get away with murder. (laughs) She can literally get away with murder. So it, it put fear in their hearts and emboldened her. But for all the ones that put fear into their hearts, others also saw the same thing, that she was untouchable and began coming to her service for services, you know, more. So as more people became afraid, there was a separate number of people who felt emboldened by her powers and said, okay, she didn't get caught for this, not really. So maybe we can partake of her services and get rid of our husbands that are abusing us. So it, it actually increased her um, clientele for the, for the services of killing the husbands. Did, did the men in the village ever get together and talk and, and wonder why they were dying in abnormally high numbers? You know, they talked, but they talked in the stable at night, drinking their brandy you know, just expressing curiosity. But I think it was the type of thing where um, something's happening, but maybe it's not. Is it? Is something happening? I don't know. They weren't scared, like lock our doors type of scared. They were just kind of like, I mean, I don't know. You see it today when in our country now, we have shootings at schools every week now or every month now, but parents are still sending their kids to schools. So they're scared and concerned, but still feeling like it can't happen. It it probably won't happen in my school with my child. So it was that kind of having some blinders on. So how long were they able to get away with this? Well, it's interesting because there started to be suspicion. And again, you can't really draw a clear line. And I think it's especially when you live in a village and you grow up with people, not just grow up, but you could have, you could grow with somebody from the age of, you know, two days old, you know, and you literally grow up with them every day of your life, that it's hard to say that that person did something so horrible. So you just don't want to believe it. But There was a couple of things that Auntie Susie used to her advantage. And one was she was the official midwife in the village, which means she was appointed by the village council, which meant she also had influence over who could be the coroner. So when the coroner would come, she could whisper in their ear, he died of, you know, a stroke. Um, He died of dysentery. He died of this, you know, and they would just write it down and, you know, say, okay, I trust you because I don't have any, you know, I'm the corner, but I don't have any experience. All I do is, you know, hold a feather to their mouth to make sure they're dead and, you know, take a pulse and, okay, they're dead. What did they die of? And Susie says, oh, they died of this or that. So um, they trusted her. They believed her when she told them that they died of heart disease or this or that. So that was one way that these um, murders went undetected. Another way the murders went undetected was that people who were suspicious and who were trying to get the attention of the village clerk 
were passing anonymous notes to him and um, he was just ignoring them. Uh, for whatever reason, he was ignoring them. So people were saying, you know, there's no, there's no justice being served here. So it was, they were, some of them, you know, were out and out suspicious and giving the anonymous notes. Some of them were like, what's going on? Do I trust my, am I, is this, could this really be happening? You know, and some of them were oblivious. It was just kind of a, a whole mixed bag of things. But another thing that she would do, because there would be that doc, the doctor who would come to the village once a week, but if she would sort of do it so that she would give a little bit of arsenic enough to make the victim sick. And so the doctor would be called, you know, please, let's make an appointment with the doctor. You know, my husband is sick. And so the doctor would come and say, oh, yes, he's sick. He must have, you know, X, Y, Z. Let's give him this medicine and that medicine. And then the doctor would leave and come back a week later and the victim is dead or sicker. But she did that on purpose to set a precedent. Right, right. So this, this village clerk you spoke about, a, a man named Ebner, why was he sitting on those notes, do you think? And it, it would eventually take the village tax collector, right, to discover those notes and to begin acting on them. Yes. Well, Ebner had been appointed village clerk. So this was a lifetime appointment. He didn't have to run for office. He didn't have to do anything to keep his position. So that that in itself made him less motivated to really do much work. He was of the gentry class, and he was head of a village of peasants. And he had a feeling of superiority about that. So, you know, it was classic for them to complain. When they would complain, they'd write an anonymous note. So the anonymous notes, when they came in, um, presumably what he thought was, they're just making a mountain out of a molehill. There's nothing here. You know, nothing's wrong with my village. You know, just sweep it under the rug. He died and he was replaced by Count Molnar, Count Molnar, who had come in as a tax collector and then, and then replaced Ebner as basically head of the village, what would we would call a mayor. And he was a very different personality. He was very persnickety, very much a taskmaster, and really wanting to get to the bottom of everything in the village. So he scrutinized everything. So it did not um, escape his his eyes. Yeah. So people start coming in from the outside. It, it turns into a, a full-blown investigation what is the process of, of sorting through all of this? I mean, it, it must have been really chaotic. Do these investigators just start canvassing the village? Do, do they basically go knocking on doors and question the people who answer? Yeah, well, it was interesting. It was at the same time the notes were getting the attention of the county sheriff, which did take some time. Um, at the same time, Basically, what was happening in another in the in a sister village, there was an attempted murder, and that that attempted murder, they fingered in questioning of these uh, couple of women, some pretty intense questioning. Finally, somebody gave way and said, "Well, you know," they pointed the finger back at Auntie Susie in in Nagirev, 
And so whether the anonymous, it was the anonymous notes, but at the same time, simultaneously, somebody's pointing a finger back at Nagarev with Auntie Susie. And so when the cops finally did come in, they were called gendarmes because gendarmes were sort of like sheriffs, you know, they count, they rule sort of the countryside. They're, they're responsible for the police policing um, in the countryside. So all of the gendarme units came in and that means all of the gendarmes, I don't know if in the County, but in six, six or seven villages in that region just poured in to this village. And it was, they had, other people, they had village council members, everybody posted on the outskirts of the village. They had people, so nobody could escape. I guess possibly you could escape into the woods, but where are you going to go? Into the river? You know, there was no possible way to escape. And they, yes, they went house to house. They um, they were actually nabbing women from their gardens. Like, when I mean nabbing, I mean taking them by force and dragging them down to this makeshift interrogation center that was set up in the village. So, I mean, basically kidnapping them, just (laughs) grabbing them and innocent or not come with us. So it must've been frightful. It must've been just absolutely terrifying. You know, there would be some places where you'd have row after row of houses on these streets and everyone, every woman in that house was down at at being interrogated. And again, whether she was innocent or not, because they didn't know how widespread is this? What, what's going on? Yeah. But what is the estimated number of people who were killed? Well, there were 66 women who were indicted for the deaths of 42 men. The prosecutor fully believed that they could um, do, dig up 162 bodies and find arsenic in every one of them. They didn't get the money to actually do those autopsies. And a lot of the perpetrators by that time had died, you know, who would have killed these, this, these older cases. So the prosecutor believed 160, 162 with the potential for hundreds more. But it's important to remember not that would not have just been this village that would have been in the surrounding villages as well. Because that happened in the surrounding villages as well, but it was Nagirev, where Auntie Susie was, was the hornet's nest. Back after these brief messages. And we're back once more. How many angel makers were there? Uh, 29 were tried and then 16 were convicted. And then some were put to death by hanging. Some... Some sentences were overruled at the higher court. Some were lessened at the higher court. So it kind of, I mean, really when I looked into it, it kind of went down like, like I could see it happening that way in U.S., in a U.S. court that, you know, that it seemed to be the ones that really, the ones that confessed were the ones that got convicted. If they didn't confess, it just didn't stick because really the evidence was circumstantial. Even though you're doing autopsy and the autopsy is showing arsenic, you can't say nobody, there was no witness there to say, you know, she did it. You know, there's no, there's no cameras on her saying. And so if they confessed, that was usually their, 
that usually resulted in a conviction. And there was one woman who only confessed after being put for a month in solitary confinement. And I mean, solitary confinement for a month. And finally, she's like, I confess, I confess. I think just, you know, obviously she's desperate for human contact. And um, as soon as she confessed, she withdrew her confession. So you just don't know what. I kind of suspect that she wasn't guilty. It just seemed to be that um, that was how there was nothing else. What can they do? They can't go in and find, you know, arsenic on their fingers, you know, <laughs> and they didn't have any DNA. So, you know, and even what would DNA do? You can't, what can you do unless you've got DNA on the fingers? I mean, so, I mean, it was really a difficult, I think it would be a really difficult case for the prosecutor to try, but it really did boil down to who confessed were the ones who got convicted. So one of the more notorious angel makers in the story and someone you focus quite a bit on in your book, uh, a woman named Maria, who was pretty darn bad. I think Maria, well, I, I took Maria's case and some of the other women's cases to um, a criminal psychiatrist in Vienna, a very famous guy there. And he looked at Maria's situation. And he said, you know, if I were, if it were me, I'd, I'd diagnose her as suffering as from the dark triad personality. So that again, goes into megalomania, narcissism, Machiavellianism, like some people might say some leaders today have this, and they are just, they have absolutely no moral fiber at all. And it's only what can be gained for them. So whether it's her husband who was, by all accounts, a pretty good guy, or her son, who was, by all accounts, a pretty good guy. You know, if if these people didn't benefit her or she had no use for them in her life, it's uh, it was a way to move on. So I found her a very difficult person to write about because I found no... Um, she was very troubling right to the core because you just found no redeeming quality in her. Not that you... But you just found nothing that you could say was, I mean, she just seemed, I don't know. She was a difficult, she's a difficult person. Was she one of the women who was executed? Yes. She was the first uh, woman to be executed in uh, decades. Yes. And she was the first woman. She was hanged. Did Aunt Susie get arrested? Um, I don't want to give too much away, but we would say that Auntie Susie, after her time in prison for the abortion charges, um, she was bound and determined never to go back to prison again. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. What makes this unique is that it was done en masse. Lots of women have poisoned their husbands throughout history. Yeah. But in this case, they, they were emboldened by each other. After realizing that it was easy and there were no consequences, they, they continued to do it and they continued to, to cover for each other. Yeah. Why, why became why not? You know, because, and for Auntie Susie, it was a business. So it's been said that she brought wholesale murder to Nagarev. And so I think that's absolutely, you're right on target. That, that does set it apart because it was just the, the sheer number 
and and her looking for you know looking for these women and saying you know I've got I've got something I can help you you know that they might not otherwise have taken her up on it. So as far as the trials go, were there any moments during the trials that were especially interesting to you? What a great question. No one has asked that so far. Yes, these trials, they had to sell tickets to the trials um, to keep because so many people wanted to come and they didn't want the courthouse to be overrun, which it was anyway. Um, they sold tickets to the trials and most of the people who wanted to witness it were people coming in, mostly women, coming in from Budapest. So they'd come in on the train and stay in hotels and, and watch these trials that were took place over a couple of years because there were so many that had to be done. But yes, there was one when Maria, who for a while is Auntie Susie's best friend. And I'll just say when Maria gets up on the stand, it's quite a show. And somebody from the gallery yells, get a rope, like hang her now. So there was a lot of that going on and people were just clamoring to get in. There was press there from all across the globe, the New York Times, uh, German newspapers, French newspapers. Along with the New York Times, there was uh, what is now known as the Chicago Tribune. I think it was the Daily Tribune or Chicago Daily back then. Everybody was here. I mean, talk about the trial of the century. This was like that and then some, because they were. it was just global coverage and newspapers were just eating it up. Time Magazine was reporting on it. I think Time Magazine was like only four or five years old at the time. Um, radio was pretty new, so radio was giving all kinds of reports on it. So it was a it, huge, huge, huge deal, international. So after this was all over, what was it shocking enough to the public that it forced some kind of reform, you know, restrictions on the procurement of arsenic, for, for example? as a reaction to what had happened? Um, it's harder to distill arsenic. Like it used to be a little bit easier, obviously, because people were doing it, but they just don't put it in the products like they used to. And I don't know if that's a direct result. That's also a good question. They asked for, they meaning authorities, I think, including the prosecutor, asked for um, police to be stationed in the village, and that was not done. So not a lot changed in the village itself. Obviously, having midwives having central roles in village life, that went out when babies started to be delivered at hospitals. So you would never have another central figure like that anymore. Um, I think, you know, but otherwise in terms of did were changes made to keep this from happening again, Otherwise than having arsenic so readily available, not as far as I could see. There were no police put into the village and that sort of thing. None, none of that happened. So you have a website, uh, right, for more information? My website is uh, my name, pattymccracken.com. And you can go there. And there's also like a, um, you can find out more about the book. And you can find out sort of where I'll be doing um, book signings and media events and stuff. But there's also a segment that um, is the behind the scenes segment. So you can sort of look at just, you know, just a blog, <laughs> but it's behind the scenes of some certain scenes that were actually cut or information that didn't make it into the 
book that I thought, oh, that's really cool. I wish I could share this, but there was not a place to sort of make a home for it in the book. Or just, you might even find my dog on there because <laughs> she was part of the research. She she uh, was my co-pilot there. So yeah, so a little bit, a little bit uh, tidbits and stuff. Well, well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, any chance to talk about the Angel Makers? Um, it's it's so great to finally have it out there because this was years and years uh, putting it together, and I finally can talk about you know I can finally talk about the story and say, can you believe this and can you believe that? So it just feels great to suddenly have a community of people that I can talk to about it. I don't just have to wake up. You know, I used to wake up in the morning, you know, have my coffee. And then go back to, you know, 1919, you know, and then 1920. And it's like, it was all just me and these women. So it's nice to kind of uh, have it out there in the world now. Again, I have been speaking to Patty McCracken. She is the author of The Angel Makers, Arsenic, a Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murder Ring. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>